Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Well, good evening, children of the night. Welcome to the Nook. Welcome to Deep, Deep, Deep summer, when the sirens of the city seem never to stop. Welcome. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Come in. Nice, yes, the air. We've got goodies, we've got drink. And, uh, yeah, I don't think the cheese is that far past expiration date. Some cheeses, you know, they're meant to look like that. Well, anyway, shove in next to Mahler. I, I know he's hard to see, but he's there, all right? When you stepped in, did you notice the new art? Yes, this being summer, I wanted to take a long lead on August and hope to race right through it. So we've got new art this week. It's a kind of seascape. The image is called Confession. It's by Sean Narendal Wong. Sean lives in the lovely island country of Singapore. He is 20 years old and is a freelance concept artist who focuses on creating art for games and film. He says, I've always loved art and have been drawing traditionally since the age of nine. Sean took a game design course at a local school at the age of 17, and that tipped him into the concept art field. He says he switched over to painting digitally by way of Photoshop about a year and a half ago, and has loved it ever since. His influences along the way of his development as an artist are Feng Zhu, Kikai Kotaki, Richard Anderson, and the late Frank Frazetta. 
They are the best in the industry at the moment, he says, and I hope to be as good as they are some day. The image we've got on the wall on Tales to Terrify's home site is dedicated to them. As mentioned, uh, Sean calls it confession. If you like this and want to see more, check his portfolio on DeviantArt at http colon slash slash narendel.deviantart.com slash that narendel is spelled n-a-r-a-n-d-e-l or you can check his portfolio website which is at http colon slash slash www.theartofshanwong.com slash that's s-e-a-n-w-o-n-g one reason I was so anxious to get Sean's piece up for this week's show is that it dovetails so nicely with the fiction. You'll see. And here are the usual announcements. Send us stories. Authors, send us your ten terrifying minutes. Everyone, go to the website and donate. Volunteer to narrate. Plan ahead to buy Tales to Terrify Volume 1. It will make a great Christmas present. And stop by iTunes and rate us. And, of course, stop by the other neighborhoods in the District of Wonders. Now we are four. They are the Starship Sofa, of course, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. There's a story for everyone out there. They all await you. And now, fiction. I have, from time to time, mentioned the work of William Hope Hodgson. Hodgson, and I don't want to give you too much about him, but I'm probably going to give you more than you really need. That's me. Hodgson was born in November 15, 1877, in Essex, England, and was the son of an Anglican priest who moved through almost a dozen livings in just over 20 years. When Hodgson was 13, he fled his boarding school and ran off to go to sea. He was caught, returned to his family, but in 1891, he began a four-year merchant marine apprenticeship and eventually became a sailor. Probably because he was a handsome young man, and if you see his pictures, you'll see, and a very small young man, he was subject to bullying by his shipmates. As a result, he began to work out using weights and punching bags, and, as Sam Muskowitz said, if bothered again, the bullies found themselves face to face with one of the most powerful men, pound for pound, in all of England. By 1895, Hodgson passed his tests and received his mate's certification. While at sea, Hodgson also studied photography and took photographs of cyclones, lightning, sharks, the aurora borealis, and the maggots that infested the food given to sailors. During this period, he kept journals of his experiences. And in 1898, by the way, he was awarded the Royal Humane Society Medal for heroism for saving another sailor who had fallen overboard. He left the merchant service in 1899 and at the age of 22 opened W. H. Hodgson's School of Physical Culture. Today we'd call it a gym. You see, bullies do have a place in the world. He became one of the best-known bodybuilders in England, but unlike Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was still not making a decent living at it and closed the place and began to write. 
articles on physical culture at first, but when the market for such things proved rather limited, he was prompted by reading the works of Poe, Wells, Verne, Conan Doyle, and others, and turned his attention to fiction. His first published works were The Goddess of Death in the Royal Magazine in 1904 and A Tropical Horror soon thereafter. Pertinent to our interests here, he, he wrote poetry, almost none of which was published during his lifetime, except that it served as introductory passages or internal portions of stories and novels. Some of his poetry never saw print, in fact, until 2005, I believe it was. He also wrote tales of the dark, the terrible, many of which are set at sea, many of which featured cyclones, lightning, sharks, the aurora borealis, the maggots that infested the food given to sailors, and many other things that appeared in his journals. Listen, I would go on, but if I did, I would gloss over details, or I would get things wrong and would irritate those people out there for whom the life and work of William Hope Hodgson has something about it of mingled faith and fervor. I do recommend you read about him, because he is a fascinating man and an excellent writer. It's well worth your time. Much of his work, by the way, is available on Amazon Kindle, either for free or at very low cost. So, as Marty DeBerge says, enough of my yakking. Here, for your delight, is one of William Hope Hodgson's chilliest sea tales. THE VOICE IN THE NIGHT It was a dark, starless night. We were becalmed in the northern Pacific. Our exact position I do not know, for the sun had been hidden during the course of a weary, breathless week by a thin haze which had seemed to float above us about the height of our mastheads at whiles descending and shrouding the surrounding sea. With there being no wind, we'd studied the tiller, and I was the only man on deck— the crew, consisting of two men and a boy, were sleeping forward in the den, while Will, my friend and the master of our little craft, was aft in his bunk on the port side of the little cabin. Suddenly, from out of the surrounding darkness, there came a hail. Stoner, die! The cry was so unexpected, I gave no immediate answer because of my surprise. It came again, a voice curiously throaty, inhuman, calling from somewhere upon the dark sea away on our port broadside. Schooner, ahoy! Hello! I sung out, having gathered my wits somewhat. What are you? What do you want? You need not be afraid, answered the queer voice, having probably noticed some trace of confusion in my tone. I'm only... An old man. The pause sounded oddly, but it was only afterwards that it came back to me with any significance. Well, why don't you come alongside then? I queried somewhat snappishly, for I, I liked not his hinting at my having been a trifle shaken. I can't. It wouldn't be safe. I... The voice broke off, and there was silence. "'What do you mean?' I asked, growing more and more astonished. "'Why not safe? Where are you?' 
I listened for a moment, but there came no answer. And then a sudden indefinite suspicion of I knew not what coming to me. I stepped swiftly to the binnacle and took out the lighted lamp. At the same time, I knocked on the deck with my heel to waken Will. Then I was back at the side, throwing the yellow funnel of light out into the silent immensity beyond our rail. As I did so, I heard a slight, muffled cry, and then the sound of a splash, as if someone had dipped oars abruptly. Yet I cannot say that I saw anything with certainty, save, it seemed to me, that with the first flash of the light there had been something upon the waters, where now there was nothing. "'Hello there,' I called. "'What foolery is this?' There came only the indistinct sounds of a boat being pulled away into the night. Then I heard Will's voice from the direction of the after-scuttle. Um, "'What's up, George?' "'Come here, Will,' I said. Oh, "'What is it?' he asked, coming across the deck. I told him the queer thing which had happened. He put several questions, then, after a moment's silence, he raised his hands to his lips and hailed— Boat ahoy! From a long distance away there came back to us a faint reply, and, and my companion repeated his call. Presently, after a short period of silence, there grew on our hearing the muffled sound of oars at which Will hailed again. This time there was a reply. Put away the light. Damned if I will, I muttered, but Will told me to do as the voice bade, and I shoved it down under the bulwarks. "'Come nearer,' he said. Then the oar-strokes continued, and when apparently some half-dozen fathoms distant, they again ceased. "'Come alongside!' exclaimed Will. "'There's nothing to be frightened of. Not aboard here.' "'Promise that you will not show the light again. What's that to do with you?' I burst out. "'That you're so infernally afraid of the light. Because—' began the voice, and stopped short. "'Because what?' I asked quickly. Will put his hand on my shoulder. "'Shut up a minute, old man,' he said. "'Let me tackle him.' He leaned more over the rail. "'Now, see here, mister,' he said. "'This is a pretty queer business. You're coming upon us like this, right out in the middle of the blessed Pacific. Are we to know what sort of hanky-pank trick you're up to? You say there's only one of you. How are we to know unless we get a squint at you, eh?' "'What's your objection to the light, anyway?' "'As he finished, I, I heard the noise of the oars again, "'and then the voice came, but now from a greater distance "'and sounding extremely hopeless and pathetic. "'I... I'm sorry. "'I would not have troubled you, only I'm hungry, "'and so is she.' "'The voice died away, and the sound of the oars dipping irregularly was borne to us. "'Stop!' sung out Will. "'I don't want to drive you away. Come back. We'll keep the light hidden if you don't like it.' He turned to me. "'It's a damn queer rig, this, but I think there's nothing to be afraid of.' Hmm? There was a question in his tone, and I replied, "'No, I think the poor devil's been wrecked around here, and he's gone crazy.' The sound of the oars drew nearer. "'Shove that lamp back in the binnacle,' said Will. "'And then he leaned over the rail and listened. 
I replaced the lamp and came back to his side. The dipping of the oars ceased some dozen yards distant. "'Won't you come alongside now?' asked Will in an even voice. "'I have had the lamp put back in the binnacle. I, I, I cannot,' replied the voice. I, "'I dare not come nearer. I dare not even pay you for the, the provisions.' "'Well, that's all right,' said Will, hesitated. "'You're welcome to as much grub as you can take.' Again he hesitated. "'You are very good,' exclaimed the voice. "'May God, who understands everything, reward you.' It broke off huskily. "'The, uh, the lady,' said Will abruptly, "'is she? I have left her behind upon the island,' came the voice. "'What island?' I cut in. "'I know not its name,' returned the voice. "'I would to God—' It began and checked itself as suddenly. Oh, "'Could we not send a boat for her?' asked Will at this point. "'No!' said the voice with extraordinary emphasis. "'My God, no!' There was a moment's pause, then it added in a tone which seemed a merited reproach— was because of our want I ventured, because her agony tortured me. "'I am a forgetful brute,' exclaimed Will. "'Just a minute, whoever you are, and I will bring you up something at once.' In a couple of minutes he was back again, and his, his arms were full of various edibles. He paused at the rail. "'Can't you come alongside for them?' he asked. "'No, I dare not!' replied the voice, and it seemed to me that in its tones I detected a note of stifled craving, as though the owner hushed a mortal desire. It came to me then, in a flash, that the poor old creature out there in the darkness was suffering for actual need of that which Will held in his arms, and yet, because of some unintelligible dread, refraining from dashing to the side of our little schooner and receiving it. And with the lightning-like conviction there came the knowledge that the invisible was not mad, but sanely facing some intolerable horror. Damn it, Will, I said, full of many feelings over which predominated a vast sympathy. Get a box. We must float off the stuff to him in it. Well, this we did— propelling it away from the vessel, out into the darkness by means of a boat-hook. In a minute a slight cry from the invisible came to us, and we knew that he had secured the box. A little later he called out a farewell to us, and so heartful a blessing that I am sure we were the better for it. Then without more ado we heard the ply of oars across the darkness. "'Pretty soon off,' remarked Will, with a, perhaps just a little sense of injury. "'Wait,' I replied. "'I think somehow he'll come back. "'He must have been badly needing that food.' "'Well, and the lady,' said Will. "'For a moment he was silent, then he continued. "'That's the queerest thing I've ever tumbled across since I've been fishing.' "'Yes,' I said, and fell to pondering.' And so the time slipped away, an hour, another, and still Will stayed with me, for the queer adventure had knocked all desire for sleep out of him. 
The third hour was three parts through when we heard again the sound of oars across the silent ocean. Listen, said Will, a low note of excitement in his voice. Listen. He's coming, just as I thought, I muttered. The dipping of the oars grew nearer, and I noted that the strokes were firmer and longer. The food had been needed. They came to a stop a little distance off the broadside, and the queer voice came again to us through the darkness. Schooner! Ahoy! That you? asked Will. Yes, replied the voice. I left you suddenly, but, but there was great need. The lady? questioned Will. The lady is grateful now on earth. She will be more grateful soon in in heaven. Will began to make some reply in a puzzled voice, but became confused and broke off short. I said nothing. I was wondering at the curious pauses, and apart from my wonder, I was full of a great sympathy. The voice continued. We, she, and I have talked as we shared the result of God's tenderness and yours, Will interposed, but without coherence. I beg of you not, not to, to belittle your deed of Christian charity this night, said the voice. Be sure that it has not escaped his notice. It stopped, and there was a full minute's silence. Then it came again. We have spoken together upon that which which has befallen us. We had thought to go out without telling any of the terror which has come into our lives. She is with me in believing that tonight's happenings are under a special ruling, and that it is God's wish that we should tell to you all that we have suffered since, since. Yes, said Will softly, since the sinking of the albatross. Ah, I exclaimed involuntarily. She left Newcastle for Frisco some six months ago. Hasn't been heard of since. Yes, answered the voice. But some few degrees to the north of the line she was caught in a terrible storm, dismasted. When day came, it was found that she was leaking badly, and presently, it falling to a calm, the sailors took to the boats, leaving, leaving a young lady, my fiancée, and myself upon the wreck. We were below, gathering together a few of our belongings when they left. They were entirely callous through fear, and when we came up upon the deck, we saw them only as small shapes afar off upon the horizon. Yet we did not despair, but set to work. Uh, we constructed a small raft— Upon this we put such few matters as it would hold, including a quantity of water and some ship's biscuit. Then, then the vessel being very deep in the water, we got ourselves onto the raft and pushed off. It was later, 
when I observed that we seemed to be in the way of some tide or current which bore us from the ship at an angle, so that the course of three hours by my watch her hull became invisible to our sight, her broken masts remaining in view for somewhat longer a period. Then, toward evening, it grew misty, and so through the night, the next day, we were still encompassed by the mist, the weather remaining quiet. For four days we drifted through this strange haze, until, on the evening of the fourth day, there grew upon our ears the murmur of breakers at a distance. Gradually it became plainer, and somewhat after midnight it appeared to sound upon either hand at no very great space. The raft was raised upon a swell several times, and then we were in smooth water, and the noise of the breakers was behind. When the morning came, we found that we were in a sort of great lagoon, but, but of this we noticed little at the time, for close before us, through the enshrouding mist, loomed the hull of a of a large sailing vessel with one accord we we fell upon our knees and thanked god for we thought that here was an end to our perils we had much to learn the raft drew near to the ship and we shouted on them to take us aboard but none answered presently the raft touched against the side of the vessel and seeing a rope hanging downwards, I seized it and began to climb. Yet I had much ado to make my way up because of a kind of grey, lichenous fungus which had seized upon the rope and which blotched the side of the ship lividly. I reached the rail and clambered over it onto the deck. Here I saw that the decks were covered in great patches with grey masses, some of them rising into nodules several feet in height. But at the time, I thought... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Less of this matter than of the possibility of there being people aboard the ship. I shouted, but none answered. Then I went to the door below the poop deck. I opened it and peered in. There was a great smell of staleness so that I knew in a moment that nothing living was within. And with the knowledge, I shut the door quickly, for I felt suddenly lonely. I went back to the side where I had scrambled up. My, my sweetheart was still sitting quietly upon the raft, Seeing me look down, she called up to know whether there were any aboard the ship. I replied that the vessel had the appearance of having been long deserted, but that if she would wait a little, I would see whether there was anything in, in the shape of a, a ladder by which she could ascend to the deck, and then we would make a search through the vessel together. A little later, on the opposite side of the decks, I found a rope side ladder. This I carried across, and a minute afterwards she was beside me. Together we explored the cabins and apartments in the after part of the ship, but nowhere was there any sign of life. Here and there, within the cabins themselves, we came across odd patches of that queer fungus— but this, as my sweetheart said, could be cleansed away. In the end, having assured ourselves that the after portion of the vessel was empty, we picked our way to the bowels between the ugly gray nodules of that strange growth. And here we made a further search, which told us that there was indeed none aboard but ourselves. This... Being now beyond any doubt, we returned to the stern of the ship and proceeded to make ourselves as comfortable as possible. Together we cleared out and cleaned two of the cabins, and after that I made examination whether there was anything edible in the ship. This I soon found was so, and thanked God in my heart for his goodness. In addition to this, I discovered the whereabouts of the freshwater pump, and having fixed it, I found the water drinkable, though somewhat unpleasant to the taste. For several days we stayed aboard the ship without attempting to get to the shore. We were busily engaged in making the place habitable, yet even thus early we became aware that our lot was even less to be desired than might have been imagined, for though as a first step we scraped away the odd patches of growth that studded the floors and walls of the cabins and saloon, yet they returned almost to their original size within the space of twenty-four hours, which not only discouraged us, but but gave us a feeling of vague unease. Still, we would not admit ourselves beaten, so set to work afresh, not only scraped away the fungus, but soaked the places where it had been with carbolic, a, a canful of which I had found in the pantry. By the end of the week, the growth had returned to full strength, and in addition... It had spread to other places, as, as though our touching it 
had allowed germs from it to travel elsewhere. On the seventh morning, my sweetheart awoke to find a small patch of it growing on her pillow close to her face. At that, she came to me so soon as she could get her garments upon her. I was in the galley at the time, lighting the fire for breakfast. "'Come here, John,' she said, and led me aft, and when I saw the thing upon her pillow, I shuddered. And then and there we agreed to go right out of the ship and see whether we could not fare to make ourselves more comfortable ashore. Hurriedly, we gathered together our few belongings.' And even among these I found that the fungus had been at work, for one of her shawls had a little lump of it growing near one edge. I threw the whole thing over the side without saying anything to her. The raft was still alongside, but it was too clumsy to guide, and I lowered down a small boat that hung across the stern, and in this we made our way to the shore. And as we drew near to it... I became gradually aware that here the vile fungus which had driven us from the ship was growing riot. In places it rose into horrible, fantastic mounds, which seemed almost to quiver, as with a quiet life when the wind blew across them. Here and there it took on the forms of vast fingers— and in others it just spread out flat and smooth, treacherous. Odd places, it appeared as grotesque, stunted trees, seeming extraordinarily kinked and gnarled, the whole quaking vilely at times. At first it seemed to us that there was no single portion of the surrounding shore which was not hidden beneath the masses of the hideous lichen. Yet in this I found we were mistaken. For somewhat later, coasting along the shore at a little distance, we descried a smooth white patch of what appeared to be fine sand, and there we landed— it was not sand. What it was, I do not know. All that I have observed is that upon it the fungus will not grow, while everywhere else, save where the sand-like earth wanders oddly, pathwise, amid the grey desolation of the lichen, there is nothing but that loathsome greyness. It is difficult to make you understand how cheered we were to find one place that was absolutely free from the growth, and here we deposited our belongings. Then we went back to the ship for such things as it seemed to us we should need. Among other matters, I, I managed to bring ashore with me one of the ship's sails, with which I constructed two small tents which, though exceedingly rough shape, served the purpose for which they were intended. In these we lived and stored our various necessities, and thus for a matter of some four weeks all went smoothly and without particular unhappiness. Indeed, I may say, with much of happiness, for we were together, 
It was on the thumb of her right hand that the growth first showed. It was only a small circular spot, much like a little gray mole. My God, how the fear leapt to my heart when she showed me the place. We cleansed it between us, washing it with carbolic and water. In the morning of the following day, she showed her hand to me. Again, the gray, warty thing had returned. And for a little while, we looked at one another in silence. Then, still wordless, we started again to remove it. In the midst of the operation, she spoke suddenly. "'What's that on the side of your face, dear?' Her voice was sharp with anxiety. I put my hand up to feel it. And there, under the hair, by your ear, a little to the front, a bit, my finger rested upon the place, and then I knew, I knew. Let us get your thumb done first, I said, and she submitted only because she was afraid to touch me until it was cleansed. I finished washing and disinfecting her thumb, and then she turned to my face. After it was finished, we sat together and talked a while of many things, for there had come into our lives sudden, very terrible thoughts. We were all at once afraid of something worse than death. We spoke of loading the boat with provisions and water and making our way out on the sea, yet we were helpless for many causes, and, and the growth had attacked us already. We decided to stay. God would do with us what was his will. We would wait. A month, two months, three months passed, and the places grew somewhat, and there had come others. Yet we fought so strenuously with the fear that its headway was but slow, comparatively speaking. Occasionally we ventured off to the ship for such stores as we needed. There we found that the fungus grew persistently. One of the nodules of the main deck became soon as high as my head. We had now given up all thought or hope of leaving the island. We had realized that it would be unallowable to go among healthy humans with the things from which we were suffering with this determination and knowledge in our minds, we knew that we should have to husband our food and our water, for we did not know at that time, but that we should possibly live for many years. This reminds me that I have told you that I am an old man, judged by the years. This is not so. But, but, he broke off, then continued somewhat abruptly, as I was saying, we knew that we should have to use care in the matter of food, but we had no idea then how little food there was left of which to take care. It was a week later that I made the discovery that all the other bread tanks, which I had supposed were full were empty, and that beyond odd tins of vegetables and meat and some other matters, we had nothing on which to depend but the bread in the tank which I had already opened. 
After learning this, I bestirred myself to do what I could and set to work at fishing in the lagoon, but with no success. At this I was somewhat inclined to feel desperate until the thought came to me to try outside the lagoon in the open sea. Here at times I caught odd fish, but so infrequently that they proved of but little help in keeping us from the hunger which threatened. It seemed to me that our deaths were likely to come by hunger, and not by the growth of the thing which had seized upon our bodies. We were in this state of mind when the fourth month wore out, when I made a very horrible discovery. One morning, a little before midday, I, I came off from the ship with a portion of the biscuits which were left. In the mouth of her tent, I saw my sweetheart sitting, eating something. "'What is it, my dear?' I called out as I leapt ashore, yet on hearing my voice she seemed confused, turning slyly through something toward the edge of the little clearing, and it fell short in a, a vague suspicion having arisen within me, I, I walked across and picked it up. It was a piece of the grey fungus. As I went to her, with it in my hand, she turned deadly pale, then rose red. I felt strangely dazed and frightened. My dear, my dear, I said, and could say no more, yet at words she broke down and cried bitterly. Gradually, as she calmed, I got from her the news that she had tried it the preceding day and, and liked it. I got her to promise on her knees not to touch it again, however great our hunger. After she had promised, she told me that the desire for it had come suddenly, and that until the moment of desire she had experienced nothing towards it but the most extreme repulsion. Later, in the day, feeling strangely restless and much shaken with the thing which I had discovered, I made my way along one of the twisted paths formed by the white sand-like substance which led out among the fungoid growth. I had once before ventured along there, but not to any great distance. This time, being involved in perplexing thought, I went much further than hitherto. Suddenly... I was called to myself by a queer, hoarse sound on my left. Turning quickly, I saw that there was movement among an extraordinarily shaped mass of fungus close to my elbow. It was swaying uneasily, as though it possessed life of its own. Abruptly, as I stared, the thought came to me that, that the thing had a grotesque resemblance to the figure of a distorted human creature. Even as the fancy flashed into my brain, there was a slight sickening noise of tearing, and I saw that one of the branch-like arms was detaching itself from the surrounding grey masses and coming toward me. The head of the thing, a, a shapeless grey ball, inclined in my direction. I stood stupidly, and the vile arm brushed across my face. I gave out a frightened cry and ran back a few paces. There was a, a sweetish taste upon my lips where the thing had touched me. I licked them and was 
Immediately filled with an inhuman desire, I turned and seized a mass of the fungus, then more and more. I was insatiable. In the midst of devouring, the remembrance of the morning's discovery swept into my mazed brain. It, I, it was sent by God. I dashed the fragment I held to the ground, then utterly Wretched and feeling a dreadful guiltiness, I made my way back to the little encampment. I, I think she knew by some marvelous intuition which love must have given. So soon as she set eyes on me, her, her quiet sympathy made it easier for me, and I told her of my sudden weakness, yet omitted to mention the extraordinary thing which had gone before. I desired to spare her all unnecessary terror. But for myself, I had added an intolerable knowledge to breed an incessant terror in my brain, for I doubted not that I had seen the end of one of those men who had come to the island in the ship, in the lagoon, and in that monstrous ending I had seen our own. Thereafter, we kept from the abominable food, though the desire for it had entered into our blood. Yet our drear punishment was upon us, for day by day, with monstrous rapidity, the fungoid growth took hold of our poor bodies. Nothing, nothing we could do would check it materially, and so, and so, we who had become human became... Well, it matters less each day. Only, only we had been man and maid. And day by day, the fight is more dreadful to withstand the hunger lust for the terrible lichen. A week ago, we ate the last of the biscuit, and since that time I have caught three fish. I was out here fishing tonight when your schooner drifted upon me out of the mist. I hailed you. You know the rest, and may God, out of his great heart, bless you for your goodness to a, a couple of poor, outcast souls. There was the dip of an oar, another. Then the voice came again, and for the last time, sounding through the slight surrounding mist, ghostly and mournful, God bless you. Goodbye. Goodbye, we shouted together, hoarsely, our, our hearts full of many emotions. I glanced about me. I became aware that the dawn was upon us. The sun flung a stray beam across the hidden sea, pierced the mist dully, and lit up the receding boat with a gloomy fire. Indistinctly I saw something nodding between the oars. I thought of a sponge, a great gray nodding sponge. The oars continued to ply. They were gray, as was the boat, and my eyes searched a moment vainly for the conjunction of hand and oar. My gaze flashed back to the head, 
It nodded forward as the oars went backward for the stroke. Then the oars were dipped, the boat shot out of the patch of light, and the, the thing went nodding into the mist. Because of his experiences in his youth, uh, many of Hodgson's stories are set at sea, many of the novels, too. Many deal with themes of the creeping unknown or sometimes cannibalism. You know, we are all drawn to the sea, I think. I'm a kid from the east coast of the United States, and every summer we headed toward the sea, and I would always be awed by the size and the depth of what I could see out there, or what I couldn't see. Like the sky, it seemed to be without a limit. It held vast mysteries, embraced distant continents, islands unknown, depths unexplored. It contained vast creatures, I knew it, creatures of unknown shape and imposing abilities. There is something that draws us there. That, I guess, is part of being human. We always want to know. We always want to know what's out there, over the hump of the world, over the next hill. By some reckoning, despite his heroic efforts at sea, though, Hodgson won his medal for jumping into a shark-infested sea and saving the life of that fellow sailor. And despite that, Hodgson is thought to have feared the water and left it because of that fear. But fear is what horror is about— in writing out his terrors, he returned to them, faced them. In this week's story, we can see the fungus on that unnamed island as an analog for the very human terrors of disease. Hodgson's father, for example, left his family destitute when he succumbed to throat cancer. Well, so too with us. In reading horror, we simply face our terrors. I discovered Hodgson not too long after I discovered H.P. Lovecraft. And I am still discovering him. I hope you'll join me. And that is this week's show. And I want to take a moment here to thank some people. Mahler, the ink black cat of the nook, of course. But also, let me thank a lot of people who are off in the dark, pulling the strings, helping to get these tales to you in the night. All our writers, of course, those alive and those dead. And the readers. Without them, no, 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 we have no show. And Harry Markov in Bulgaria. He's the co-editor here, and he does a lot of the story and narrator wrangling. He posts things, makes sure things go smoothly. Skeet Sienski, artist, art director for the place. He's the one who makes things pretty and colorful and sometimes darkly wondrous. And, of course, Tony C. Smith, the father of us all over there in the north of England, up near the Scottish border, and keeping his eyes on the stars, as well as these dark and dingy corridors of Tales to Terrify, and now on the other neighborhoods of this district of wonders. Thanks to you all. So now, scoot, go on home, go. Go quietly through the dark, because dark things may be astir out there, 
It is summer night, you know. Mahler and I have work, and you, you'll soon be home. Go softly, but make yourself known to the dark of your own stairs. Slip into bed, make a little noise, and then, shh, listen. Listen to the floor where something may rustle. Listen to the walls where things may clamor. Listen, above all, to your ceiling where things may peek down upon you. But by then, of course, you'll be asleep and be in the midst of very pleasant dreams. Hmm. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. DistrictofWonders.com. Thank you for listening.